Before we start today's episode of Fintech Insider, we just wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the trusted brand of the financial services industry with over 1,250 customers, including more than 250 payment companies and more than 350 banks, creating a robust ecosystem of leading banks, payment, and fintech companies. These companies use Equinix private interconnection to quickly and securely connect to cloud providers, customers, and partners wherever they are in the world. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews. I'm Sam Mall. It's my pleasure today to be joined by Nico Carbonas. He's the product lead at Plaid and John Pitts, the policy lead at Plaid. Yes, we are combining product and policy on the show today. Nico, how you doing? I'm doing well, all things considered. How are you? I'm doing well. And you are in New York City, writing this out in your lovely flat, I'm sure. That's right, uh, in Brooklyn, yep. Oh, God. Which part of Brooklyn? Uh, Prospect Heights, so just above Prospect Park. No, so so you're doing good on food, you know? Good for doing you. Doing good on food, and the, the park is a godsend just to be able to get outside every now and then. Uh, and, and John Pitts, our policy lead, you're in D.C., right? I am. How are the cherry blossoms? Uh, the cherry blossoms are over, and uh, we were banned from going to look at them when they were blooming. So uh, I can't give you an answer on that one, unfortunately. I'm, I'm in Florida, guys. I make you both look really good. My state. <laughs> uh, just so you know, just so you know, they announced yesterday that the beaches are open again. However, not to only for recreational activity as far as walking your dogs and such. Um, I will say, unless the SWAT or National Guard come out, we'll be all over the news again. Closed. <laughs> I hope uh, not. Uh, good Lord. Um, yeah, it is Florida. Uh, so really thrilled to have you guys on. It, it was funny, as we were lining this up, um, this was really pre-shutdown and everything else. So um, it, it will be interesting to kind of get your your guys' feedback on, on you know kind of what you are seeing. I think it's more from just a personal standpoint with what we're going through, but also with, with your customers, right. And, and, and who you're working with. Cause I think, um, we're all living through exponential times. I think that's a nice way of putting it. Um, and I think, I think it's safe to say that especially companies like plaid, if you, fo- if anyone follows the news, right. And you see what's coming out, um, the speed at which you guys have been able to move and, and to offer great solutions for your customers, you should be bragging for the next 30 minutes. Okay, um, both of you, and and I do mean that. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you both. So let's let's kick off one by introducing you guys and what your background is. And just because this will be the first time I've ever said this, John, policy guy, what's your background, guys? This actually be really good. <laughs> uh, so uh, prior to joining Plaid, uh, which I did uh, in September of 2018, so around a year and a half ago, um, I was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, a new agency that was stood up in the wake of the last crisis, and by the way, thought that was going to be the only one I saw in my lifetime, um, to deal with uh, consumer protection issues in the financial world. Um, My role there was coordinating between government agencies uh, on new issues, and it turned out that one of the biggest new issues to come out of the last crisis was uh, consumers having access to their financial information and the ability to share it with third parties, something that 
we all now know colloquially as open banking. Um, so it was a great opportunity and a natural fit for me to move from CFPB to Plaid to help stand up the policy operation here and make sure that uh, all of our products and all of the consumers who rely on them have access to their data and can use the products they want. Man, what a great move by Plaid, man. I mean, at, at this point, I'm getting really tired of complimenting Zach and the team there, you know, but in all honesty, when you, when you talk about for what you guys touch on, right? And we talk about data and, and consumers and their rights and everything else for a company like Plaid to bring somebody in from the CFPB. Well done. Personally, I think that's a, a great hire. So good on you. And you had five years at the CFPB, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit over five years. Yeah. So from relatively early days uh, through the transition uh, after the election. Um, so I saw about four different versions of the CFPB, which is uh, what you get when you join a government startup. Unfortunately, it sort of got me hooked on the idea of startups, which is uh, another reason why I landed at Plaid. That's all right. Speaking of startups, Nico, love this. Uh, give a little bit of background of your life before Plaid, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so my background longer term is actually primarily in digital product versus financial services per se. Um, so I built my initial career around product design and data products, and then that evolved into sort of B2B analytics. Um, and then that background evolved into co-founding a company called Quovo with um, Lowell Putnam, who I think you spoke to previously or was on this podcast. Um, and so I came to Plaid by way of Quovo about a little over a year ago at this point um, when Quovo joined Plaid. So um, one, I've got to ask, what was it like starting a company with the legendary Lowell Putman? I know what it's like to start a company with a guy named Lowell. I don't know about the legendary <laughs> Lowell Putnam. Um, oh, that made no, me happy. It, it was, <laughs> no, it was great. Uh, you know, he and I went to college together and we had a third co-founder, Michael. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, the ride, it's the ride that you think it'll be. And also in no way is it the ride that you think it'll be at the same time. Um, yeah. So that's just the way it is. But it was wonderful. Um, and it's still wonderful. Um, the team is really doing great as part of Plaid. Yeah, I, I spoke with Lowell the day after y'all had finally finished the paperwork and were going, and Lowell had a tremendous hangover. I think it's safe to say that, um, and yet did a great interview. So uh, really been impressed, one, with the Quovo team. Uh, that acquisition for Plaid, I think it was Plaid's, was that Plaid's first acquisition? If I remember yes, that's right. right. Um, but man, timing-wise, what a great move, right? If you look at what we're in now um, and what we're going through. So I think that was a great move. And- we should give um, uh, Lowell uh, yet one more shout out in that his wife is one of the people behind the Mirror product. So I'm giving that a shout out because you talk about great timing. Their sales have got to be incredible <laughs> right now. Um, oh, my God. You know, the workout mirror that you've seen everybody. Um, again, wonderful timing. I know they had nothing to do with it from a timing standpoint, but damn. Uh, talk about some serial entrepreneurs. I love that. What's it like? I've got to ask you, Nico. What's it like being an entrepreneur like that, and then going through, you know, uh, an acquisition? You've been through one side of an acquisition, and now you're on the other side of an acquisition. Well, what's that been like? You know, it may sound cliche, but um, a lot of it on any dimension comes down to the people involved. No matter what something looks like in terms of a spreadsheet, right? Or a strategy or a product spec. At the end of the day, it is a bunch of people trying to get something done and trying to make something work. And that goes to when you're three people starting something off to when you're scaling to when you're figuring out, you know, if you want to join another company. So there's definitely an element to it where 
it's all very complex and strategic. And yet it's also at times very fundamentally simple, which is when you get in the room with the people who are going to make this happen, how does that feel? And can you make something with these people? Do you have sort of a shared grounding in the fundamentals? And honestly, do you like these people enough to endure how hard this is going to be and, and sort of make it fun when it needs to be fun so that you can keep moving forward and get what you need done? Um, so I've just been, it's really struck me how true that is across a lot of the variations of situations you find yourself in. All right, John, I'm going to put you on a spot a little bit, um, if you don't mind, because I'm, I'm curious. So when you look at what the strength of Quobo was and you look at the strength of Plaid and now, you know, with Visa, we're going across the piece. Um, one of the things that might be interesting coming out of the, the COVID crisis that we're going through um, just so happens to be on the concept of data, right? Personal data. This could be in the healthcare space. Um, um, you know, the, this concept of potentially us having some sort of Quovo antibodies or certification, you know, you take your pick. It's, I'm a sci-fi guy. Um, I feel like I'm living <laughs> through a really bad Netflix uh, <laughs> show right now. But when we talk about data and data protection, um, what do you think the current state of that is, especially around data sharing in the U.S.? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. And I think the last three weeks have actually been incredible in highlighting where we are and how much more growth opportunity there is. Um, one thing I'd point to just as a small anecdote is um, you may be aware that one of the pieces of the rescue package was a $350 billion loan program to small businesses. Um by the SBA. Well, one of the things that became apparent on the first day of that program was small businesses needed to provide their payroll information uh, to the lender in order to qualify for the loan. And it turns out that uh, under US law, you've got Dodd-Frank 1033. And so, sorry, you've got a policy person on. And so I'm going to quote like nerdy chapters of the United States Code. It's it's what you signed up for when you in uh, his asked head. me on. I guarantee you, in your head, you can see what the page looks like. You can probably quote me pages and lines and paragraphs. I can tell you that it's exactly 75 words long, and I'm not going to recite them <laughs> from memory, but uh, yes, you, you've got me pegged there. So yeah. uh, that says consumers have the right to access their financial data. Turns out, small businesses don't have the same right under the law. And so everyone had to scramble over the last uh, two weeks and Plaid, some of the people here did an amazing job, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later, in putting together something to give small businesses access to their own data. Um, but what you've seen is we're on an incomplete journey right now where you don't yet have the same data access. And in particular, you don't have the same types of digital products that are powered by that data access across the entire economy. And that has been really evident in the middle of this rescue. Um, that said, I think we've made huge strides in the US. Um, there are hundreds of millions of consumers who can access their data and use it to power the great fintech apps that they want to use. Um, I think in a lot of ways, we've already been more successful than Europe in terms of the growth of data access, if not necessarily the growth of the regulatory structure around that data access. Damn, that's a that's a heck of a statement to make. I think it's true, though. I mean, if you just look at the market uh, in the U.S. in terms of uh, growth of fintechs, growth of consumer use of data, it's going much faster here than it is in Europe. Uh, what we don't have are some of the 
strict regulations around it that Europe has, those are starting to come. You know, you're seeing that with like the California uh, law that passed last year. Um, but the actual data access and data usage is a real success story in the U.S. Um, and I think there's a tremendous amount of growth opportunity still to come. Um, and this crisis has really just illustrated how big that opportunity is. Do, do you think this is, and, and Nick, I'll be curious and, and, and your two cents on this too, but John, do you think this is from the U.S. a pre-COVID, a market-driven, um, uh, is this market-driven or do you think, especially coming out of COVID, this is going to be much more regulatory-driven? Uh, so I think it's been market-driven up until this point. And by market-driven, let me, let, me, let, yeah. let me be really, really clear. It's been consumer-driven. It's been individual consumers saying, this is giving me something that I want because it makes my financial life better. That's been the entire drive in the U.S. market for the last five years. Um, I think what we're going to start seeing post-crisis is uh, governments and other institutional players trying to catch up to where consumers already are and frankly have been for the last five years in terms of their expectations about how finances should work for them. So I know that coming out of 2008, which you lived through, both of you were, lived through this, one of the, I think one of the key learnings from my standpoint from that was really companies like Plaid working with the regulators to educate them Right. Um, and, and, and the politicians and take your pick um, to educate them on on the technology, the use cases and what consumers really need and, and how to be able to deploy that quickly. Right. I think that's going to be a con- huge part of both the all's job. I, I think that's right. I think also, you know, piggybacking a little bit on, on sort of how it's consumer driven and how you have these moments in crisis where things happen that sort of create some lasting changes. Um, if you look at what's happening now, there are stats going around that fintech usage has spiked from anywhere from 40% to 85%, right, in different geographies. Yeah. And John's right that this has been driven by consumers. The demand is because people want to do this to make their lives better, right? So it is a very sort of ultimately consumer and person-focused driver here. And then if you think about how that plays into where we are now, and you think about how does this situation today translate into lasting change. Okay, we're all homebound right now. We have to first get through the peak of the curve. Then we have to come down the other side of the curve. Then we have to wait for the numbers to settle so that they seem solid enough that we can contemplate reopening. Then we do some reopening. Then you reopen. And then you have enough to reopen that people could come out and go back to in-person activities if they wanted to. But then you also have to wait long enough for everybody to be comfortable enough doing that, that they're going to do it at the level they used to before. And so what that means is all the folks who are on apps today getting uh, engaged and making their lives better through data connectivity and through fintech, not only are they engaging with it and driving demand in a really punctuated way, as they have been progressively over the last few years, the timeline looking forward of where that not only will be valuable, but potentially your only way of doing this is sort of indeterminate, right? Um, and that's where you're going to see, I think, not only is it a spike because everyone's stuck inside, but it, it's a spike that may persist for a while and is definitely going to be part of the new normal, just like it was going to anyway, that might just be accelerated now because of what we're seeing today. So I think these are really meaningful changes where even more so than we've had in the past, and in the past, we've had it progressively more and more. 
having this actually built into the routine and mindshare of consumers as just a part of their day-to-day lives. I think one of my favorite parts of my early interview with Lowell, when I talked to him, um, we were talking about data and data security, right? And I think Lowell gave just one of the most honest comments I ever heard, right? Which was, um, when you look at Plaid and and you look at what y'all do, um, this all comes down to, um, at the end of the day, a ton of this comes down to data security, right? And, and, and Lowell just said flat out, this falls on us, right? He goes, we, we, this is something uh, we can't screw up. And, and it, it, this is what consumes our lives. Um, but, but to balance that with what you, you said earlier, because John was giving me a compliment about how fast you're able to move, right? How fast you guys are able to deploy new code, right? And, and again, you're talking about data here, whether it's consumers or businesses. Um, how do you balance that? I'm going to start with Nico and then John, you can jump in on that one. But how do you balance the need to move fast? Because, oh my God, we need to right now, right? Because, I mean, honestly, we're building policies on the fly, right? We're, we're, we've released $350 billion and we've already, it's gone. And we're going to go through this again, right? Um, how, how do you balance that need for speed with, I, I know you talked about a, a spike um, just now and the on the cyber attack side, on, on that side, that's got to be just ridiculous right now. So how do you balance it? Well, I think it's important to make the distinction that the the balance for security is not necessarily us building faster, right? It's making sure consumers get the access they need. And so we will always build fast because that's who we are and that's what we do. Um, you don't want to say that security should be lax so that I can iterate faster. That is a false trade-off. And it's also a false trade-off to say, Security should be tighter and we should restrict consumer access. Because if you, if you look at what's happening now, if you diluted consumer access or small business access to their financial accounts, I mean, this is exhibit A of why you need to be able to connect quickly and securely to get what you need ASAP. So I think what's important is, yes, yeah, security is our top priority, right? Like, you know, we wake up thinking about it. We go to sleep thinking about it. It is never not in the forefront. Um, it's paramount. But you just need to be careful not to have false trade-offs where they aren't required, where you do, you're correct, you do need to move quickly. Um, but it's not necessarily moving quickly to build, it's moving quickly to give people things that make their lives better, right? And that's, of course, building is in service of that. But you really have to keep your focus on the end consumer and the value there. And you need to make sure that security isn't being artificially used to sort of bludgeon innovation or the ability to restrict consumers from getting what they need, not only in sort of these dire times, but also an ongoing basis, because sometimes we're not in a pandemic, right? But you also need <laughs> to, to manage your financial life and improve your outcomes, so it doesn't go away. Yeah. All right, um, policy guy, anything you would add on top of that, John? So the other thing that I would add to that is, I think it's really important to also bear in mind that, um, security, as Nico said, it, it's not a trade-off. And it's also something that you're looking at in the context of what else is out there, right? We're in the middle of talking about, uh, as a country, sending physical printed checks to 85 million people. Um, it's going to go really well, by the way. In, in 2020, right? And so like, um, we are already in a world, and it's a world that... Uh, plaid built over the last five years where 
if you want to move money from your bank account uh, to an app like Venmo, you can do it securely and in an encrypted way in 30 seconds. Um, there are really important security considerations in making sure you get that right, and Nico walked through all of those. But I think it's also important to recognize that the other options that are out there for consumers have massive security risks of their own and are also much less consumer-friendly. And so part of what we are doing is making sure that as this new uh, technology and new opportunities arise for consumers, it's more secure than what existed before and also gives the consumers the choice they want to use the products the way they want to. Yeah, and I think that's something that I think um, should be emphasized more. You know, you go back a, a decade or more. So I'm, I'm, we keep using 2008 as kind of the benchmark. But um, again, there, there are certain components that are like that, and then so much that isn't what we're going through, right? It's, it's completely different. But how far we've come in code deployment, right? Um, the data security around that, the, the processes that we have and the speed at which we can do that. You know, I'm an old school banker from way back in the day with Northern Trust. I was with TSIS, um, you know, for years. So I've lived through the whole, you know, quarterly code deployment and the back out of that and everything else. And Nico is smiling because I'm guessing you guys can deploy, you know, God knows how many times a day in, in real time. I mean, that's how far we've come. Right. I mean, Monzo bragged about this. Uh, I don't know if it was bragging, but I think they did some. They broke their record and they did something like 47 cold deployments to production in a single day without a single, you know, issue. That's that's reality now. And you're right, and that is about building fast, right? But but you're building in service of someone, and so you you need to make sure that that you are building and deploying at, in a timely fashion for the folks who are using the service and. You know, to John's point, paper checks, paper checks that might be held up because someone wants to sign them, right? Like that's the kind of thing that takes even longer if there's sort of processes happening before that even hits the mail. And so time is definitely of the essence. You just need to focus it on the consumers who are actually getting the value and have the need. And that's your North Star. Uh, Nico, how many COBOL programmers do you have? Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move right ne past that. <laughs> negative, negative 100. <laughs> Uh, to our friends in Europe, hey, you, you do the same thing. Quit bragging over there. All right. Um, John, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think especially in a conversation with Vlad, we should talk about it more. This concept of universal standards, you know, so when we're talking about data sharing. Um, it Again, I think we talked a little bit about this that prior to this, you know, it was really market driven. Um, and But coming out of this, if we could touch on this a little bit more, um, Talking about the concept of open banking and these universal standards for data sharing and ease of use for consumers, um, is this going to be a reality? Is this something we can actually implement in the U.S.? I think so. Um, and I think it's something that we actually have a good chance of doing with a market-driven approach, which is great because uh, there are some real drawbacks in the top-down approach that other places have taken. Um, just to sort of highlight those drawbacks, but I think that also tells the story of how we can get it right here. Um, the North Star for a lot of people is what the UK did with OBIE and their open banking API. Um, an immediate problem that, that cropped up was only some types of financial accounts, current payment accounts, are exposed to that API. So if you have a mortgage account, you're outside of open banking in the UK. And if you want to share it, 
you're not going to be sharing it over the open banking APIs. So clear lesson learned here, which is the approach to a universal standard has to be one where you're getting the full functionality out of that standard that you want, and you're able to permit the same level of innovation uh, that you have right now, even as you apply the standard. Um, We're members of the financial data exchange in the U.S., Um, That's a body of banks, uh, fintechs, and aggregators working together to try to put together a full interoperable standard. Um, I'm not going to lie, right? The challenges are immense in getting that right because you're coordinating with 30 banks, uh, aggregators, a bunch of people, all of whom have their way of doing things and are not necessarily uh, built the same way internally, trying to come together and build a product that everyone can agree on. But I think we're making real progress on that effort. And frankly, I think that, you know, the last month where there's been real strain on the infrastructure of particularly FIs that built on old program, old infrastructure has really made it apparent that it's an imperative for them to move on to, um, more modern API-based technology as well to make this work. So I'm optimistic that we can get there in the U.S. as long as we take a really clear-eyed approach of the goal is to have access for consumers that is equal to what they experience now or better, not to use this as an opportunity to sort of block out areas and cut off innovation. So Nico is the one of the people responsible for then actually implementing this, right? It's, it's one thing to have policy. It's another to actually have products that work, right? In support of that, you, you equally as optimistic? I am. I think um, what's key is to understand what you're trying to build, right? You're not trying to build uh, the most specific specification of all time to ensure that everyone is crossing their T's and dotting their I's every day because it's 2020, but this is fundamentally a technology question. And technology doesn't freeze in place for a year, right? So we have to make sure that we're focusing on principles and access um, and that we're all working toward the same thing together without making it so brittle that in a year when there's new innovations and new protocols, the, the, the whole thing's turned on its head in terms of um, what is actually the preferred means of doing X, Y, or Z. Uh, we're not trying to turn around the ocean liner, right? And we're, we still yeah. have enough room to come up with the best design products, the most secure access points, the most robust robust offerings for consumers and for institutions, and not feel like our hands are tied. I think one of the things that's interesting, we've been sitting here talking about standards, um, yeah, you know, within the U.S., but, you know, part of um, what's happening, you know, with Plaid and the Visa acquisition and everything else uh, you guys have expanded into the Netherlands, and and not only have you expanded, but you know if you're going to go and expand, you might as well go big. So you know we're talking, working with ING, Rabobank, ABN, Amro integrations. I think that pretty much covers ninety nine point nine nine percent of the Netherlands, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. So um, you know when you talk about that expansion into Europe, um, you know what's what's next for Plaid there, and then John, uh, and how 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 brushed up are you on Data, <laughs> data requirements <laughs> for the European market. <laughs> can you can you quote pages? Uh, really so I, 
I cannot quote pages in Europe the same way I can in the US, yeah. but uh, I've uh, had the good luck to hire a great team uh, in that market who can quote pages uh, when I can't, um, which is a relief because for a good part of last year, uh, part of my job was trying to keep in my head the regulatory structure of the US, Canada, European Union, and UK simultaneously. And uh, I, I will honestly tell you, I probably did uh, at best a toddler level job at doing that. And and Nico, don't laugh at this. I'm going to show how old I am. So way back in the day, 20 years ago, when I worked at TSIS, uh, you'll love this. We had a code base for the US consumer, US commercial, Europe consumer, Europe commercial, Asia. You, you see where I'm going with this, right? I, I'm um, there, it yeah. was lovely. How are you doing, man? How's that going? <laughs> <laughs> Does it change your life at all? No, you know, I think the, the if you zoom out enough, what's the coolest part of all this, honestly, is it's a global use case, right? Like human beings want to do this no matter where they are. And that's sort of the, it's really impressive and interesting to see this. Um, that's, that's one of the ways, right? If you're looking for signs that this is a, a new paradigm, you add that to the list, which is that it is geography agnostic in terms of folks wanting this. Um, and there's a lot to learn every new geography. You have to appreciate the nuance, right? Both of regulation as well as what is the readiness of the market to adopt? How do they make decisions? All those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, we want to keep learning and be iterative and be respectful of what it means to enter a new geography. Uh, but it's really just fascinating and exciting because it just makes the case for what we're doing as being like a thing for humanity in the next era, you know what I mean? As opposed to sort of a specific market or industry. Yeah. If I can jump on that also and say, it's also a thing for our customers, right? In some ways, um, one of the first problems that Plaid solved in the U.S. market was for our customers, how do you integrate into lots of different banks that have lots of different architecture? Right. The next step is some of our customers want to go global. How do you integrate into different open banking systems that work differently from the U.S. market? It's not just different banks, but it's different regulations, different API standards, different specs. Um, ideally, they should be able to use Plaid to grow globally, just as they used Plaid to grow domestically in the U.S. And then you know you are going to start seeing companies from Europe enter the U.S. market. Uh, Australia, Brazil, Canada, there's lots of people who are building to open banking now. And ideally, for most fintech companies that have got a great solution that helps improve consumers' life, uh, we should be able to help them scale that solution into as many markets as possible as easily as possible. I mean, if you look at the complexity, right, that that we solve, and this is exactly why I founded Quovo and exactly why I was so excited to be part of Plaid, is you've got thousand institutions in the U.S., right? You have, you have institutional count, then that multiplied by geography, then multiplied by use case or required data elements for use case, right? Then multiplied by the integration methods or specifications of a specific institution. And you're looking at such a significant escalation complexity for customers who do want to scale that that's a big part of our customer value proposition, right? Is that we will figure all of that out and when you do want to scale across institutions, across use cases, across data types, across geographies, across integration methods, that's where you partner with Plaid. 
So the more and more that this grows and sort of proliferates across all those dimensions, the, the stronger I think our partnership with customers will be and our value proposition to them. And normally I wrap up an interview with, you know, so what's next or what's the future um, for Plaid? But other than maybe doing something on Mars with Elon Musk, um, I think the challenge that you have ahead of you and the, and the roadmap that you have ahead of you, um, we just touched on, right? I mean, really, it's, it's, it's taking this at scale and going global to so many markets. And it's one of the, the fascinating things with the, you know, with, with, with what's happened with Visa and with y'all that it just becomes, <laughs> you, you, you don't want to limit yourself in your thinking. I think that's a nice way to put it, right? It's, it's also, you know, we have a role to play that we are going to continue playing as being sort of custodians of the ecosystem, right? You have consumers, you have developers, you have financial institutions. All of those need to interact in a sort of mutually beneficial, sustainable way for us to meet that consumer demand and use case that provides the value that we've been outlining. And we sit at a very unique place in that ecosystem, right, in terms of working with the banks and integrating with them in terms of being uh, the platform that our fintech customers are building on and in terms of delivering the value to the end consumer. So we're going to continue to tighten up that ecosystem so that everybody's aligned and that we're generating a solution that provides value to everybody who's involved and being really thoughtful and strategic in how we do that. Because I think the ultimate end outcome of this is best for everybody if there's that really nice tight alignment from those constituents with Plaid as a little bit of the epicenter pulling it all together so that we move as one and grow and innovate the way that we need to, but as one ecosystem. So, um, and take this as a compliment, John, for the policy wonks that are out there and listening to this, um, we have one at 11FS, his name is Nas, and John, oh my God, he would love to get in contact with you and talk through this all day. Um, for, for our policy wonks that are listening, where's the best place for them to follow you, John, or, or to get in touch with you? Uh, so, uh, I mean, just reach out to me directly. I'll basically spend an unlimited amount of time talking through the U.S. code with you uh, until someone tells me I should be doing something differently. Um, I tend not to do very much on uh, social or media, although the last couple of weeks have uh, been pretty intense as everyone tried to figure out what the $2.2 trillion rescue package was going to look like. Um, but anyone should just reach out to me at Plaid here. I'm happy to talk anytime. All right. And, and Nico, I'm sure there's a Slack channel somewhere <laughs> for you. There's a, there's a ton of Slack channels. I mean, this is the risk of getting a policy guy and a data nerd on the same interview. I also have embraced the hermit life, and I'm not a social media guy either that much. Uh, but plaid.com, <clears throat> excuse me, and our blog at blog.plaid.com, that will have all the updates in terms of what's going on in the business. Um, you know, we are out there and active both in terms of COVID, but just in terms of our business not stopping, right? And I think there's a lot of unique things we're doing, like our partnership with Microsoft, where we're putting Plaid in Excel, things like that. So you're never going to stop hearing from us. Um, and I think when it hits the airwaves, that'll be uh, that'll be your cue that we're doing something cool. Um, but you can find us on plaid.com or like John said, uh, we can be reached out to directly pretty, pretty easily. Well, guys, thank you both. Um, for our listeners, as for me, uh, Sam Ball on Twitter. Um, however, I'll agree with both Nico and John. I'm getting so tired of social media after what feels like five years living in my house that God, I could take a break. Um, but as always reach to us out to us. Um, you know, you can, you can go to the 11 FS page, read our blogs, jump in with us for great interviews like this. Um, I'll resurface the Lowell Putman, wonderful 
um, interview that we did too, just in honor of this episode. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast, review us on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. We actually do. Pass the podcast along. If you know someone who loves FinTech and who isn't listening to FinTech Insider, tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out to us on Twitter or email podcast at 11fs.com. And thank you so much for listening.